This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a wall, learn to dance, call your mom, buy a boat, drink a beer, sing a song, make a friend. All right, Brendan, so it's been a little bit here, a lot to catch up on. What are we talking about this week? It has been a little bit, Um, and so there is a a lot to talk about that's developed over these last couple of weeks in our fast-moving political world. Uh, The the big topics that we're going to discuss this week are the stimulus efforts, which there, we referenced briefly uh, at, in our last episode, but there have been, so there's been some movement on that over the past few weeks that we're going to get into a little more depth with that. And we're also going to talk about the death penalty uh, at the federal level here in the United States. And um, some people might be aware that it's been in the news this past week, and we'll get into why that is. So those are going to be the longer discussions that we're going to have in this episode. But uh, like you said, it's, it's been a few weeks since we recorded. It's uh, been a pretty busy time for both of us. Uh, you are working, going to school at night. I am going to school during the day and doing some work at night. Um, I'm in final season. You're in final season. You just started a new job. So uh, we got a lot going on personally. Uh, so it's been a few weeks since we've been able to get together and, and chat. Uh, so before we get into those like bigger conversations that we're going to have, I'd be curious, any smaller things that have stood out to you uh, over the past few weeks that you know maybe you want to discuss? Yeah, that's, uh, um, I think we were talking about this a little bit. I, uh, I've felt like, well, obviously personal things have kept, have crept in and gotten me busy, but I think more so just like the hyper intensity of the election period where I was on my phone all day long or, you know, on the New York times or Washington post, whatever, trying to absorb as much news as I could, as I felt humanly possible and try and make some sense of what was going on that after, you know, a week or two after the election and we got a little bit more clarity and some of um, some of the, you know, the states that felt like they maybe were sort of still in play kind of really ironed. You're, you're saying they're not? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, all right. Yeah. I mean, if, we got, if we're going to talk about something, it's the 126 whatever House Republicans that signed on uh, or, you know, backed that Texas lawsuit to invalidate other states' election results. Um, I'm rolling my eyes with as far as they can roll here, but uh, but yeah, I mean, in 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 reality, I really uh, I don't know that it was a conscious effort, but it, it just sort of happened that I kind of unplugged. I felt myself a lot less likely to uh, to open up the New York Times app than I was maybe to to do some mindless scrolling in Instagram, and I feel like it was a nice reset for me. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I think it's it's important to have a balance with all this, and it's not healthy for really anybody, I think, to be so consumed by the news and politics. Like, we, we've spent a lot of the first few months of this podcast talking about how cool it is that people are more and more involved in and aware of what's happening politically in our country, and I that hasn't changed. I, I really believe that's a good thing, but it's also – this stuff is heavy and, and stressful, and to be kind of mired in it all the time is – 
it, it takes a toll on you, I think, mentally, emotionally. And I think after the election, it's good for everybody to, like you say, unplug a little bit and step away. On the other hand, you hope in that people don't unplug for three years, right? And then come back at the next presidential election, right? That's why I think there is definitely a balance to be struck where it doesn't have to be all consuming, but continue to pay attention to the important things that are happening in our world. And uh, for all the people that were active in the campaign, whether it was you know out in the world or on social media or with their money or their voices, um, I hope those don't go away. And I don't think they will. I think there's, there's been like a really a seismic shift in the national conversation and national awareness of this stuff. But yeah, I definitely want to kind of echo your point where it's, it's been nice that it's not so intense and, and so consuming over this past, you know, couple of weeks at least. Yeah. I think, I think that's an interesting thing to think about, you know, politics in general and how obviously the things that happen at the federal level do have, you know, significant impacts um, to people's lives, certainly in the long run. Um, but also, you know, they can be felt kind of day to day with certain programs or policies and things like that. Um, and it, I, I, you know, I have to feel like there is a bit of a tendency with a guy like Joe Biden, who's, you know, he's been, he's been around, um, he's bringing a lot of people um, that have also been around, there is sort of a tendency to, um, to want to sort of, I don't know, breathe a sigh of relief or just kind of feel like um, he's not out here to do anything too radical. And so I'm, you know, as an individual, more likely to think about my own day to day and, um, you know, rather than, than what's going on. And I think, I think that is the key, right? Like finding that balance and staying in touch with what's going on, um, but not overloading yourself and, uh, and, and figuring it out that way. I'm hoping I'm hoping to be better at that in 2021. I'll say that. Look at that goals. It's already you're three weeks early on the New Year's resolutions. So this is this is yeah. impressive. Other, other yeah, put it on the list of resolutions I won't be keeping. <laughs> and there is the pessimistic Ricky that we all know and love. <laughs> so things that I guess you, you touched on one of the things that has you know, certainly continue to dominate the news over the past few weeks, if, you know, even just for our, the one we did check in and, and look at it, which is President Trump continuing to dispute the election results. And just, he had a video, I think maybe a week ago, it was like a 45, 46 minute video where he just cried and, and like made an unbelievable number of, of falsehoods at this point. Um, there, there's like a lot of things that we can try to briefly touch on, at least like on the surface level. I, I think things that stand out to me is that it's never like been funny that he's questioned the election. I, I think it's, it's gets less and less funny as, as this, as it goes along in some ways where it's like, at some point it becomes, and you reference that list of a hundred plus Republicans in, in Congress that have signed on, disputing these election results like it's what i said like after the election where it really starts to undermine democracy and it, it, it seems like it's it's become more like almost treasonous or seditious where you, like at, at this point you know I, I guess i would give you a week a couple week grace period when it did seem like things were up in the air but at this point it's it's not just trump but trump and his band of merry men that are really trying to overturn the will of the people. Uh, and that, that's, that's scary in some ways. I think it's, 
it's not as scary because like the the system has held and in that sense like that's been really good to see and and people like um governor kemp in georgia governor ducey in arizona um the courts up and down even like at the very small level like the michigan election certifiers like those those the republican that certified the votes right it's it's been reassuring to see the system hold under one of the biggest stress tests it's ever had. Uh, and so like in that sense, it's like, all right, the democracy does work. On the other hand, when you have a hundred plus elected officials, uh, including the the commander in chief of, of our armed forces, disputing the election results over a month after they've happened, we're really like, I, I mean, treasonous is, is a big word, but it's, it's people like questioning the legitimacy of our democracy still. And, and that's troubling to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you talk about how um, sort of a testament to our system that it has held. Um, I think the pessimistic side of me looks at how fragile of a system it is, Absolutely. how much it is still dependent on people doing the right thing like no, that's really that's really well said it's like that Frank, it's the franklin quote right a democracy if you can keep it right right exactly exactly and that's and that's um i i'm not i think i had always well one yeah you know you sort of assume that there are enough people that uh had the integrity have the principles and we've elevated them and you know it, even if you have a guy like Trump, who's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, right? Like, there's no surprise there. But but the the thing that is kind of disconcerting is that 126 people with absolutely zero evidence um, would would sort of sign on to what he's saying and not be like, you know, at this point, it's time to give it a rest. Um, certainly, it, right? Like, we have to commend those Republicans who are doing the right thing, including many Trump appointed justices, including Trump's three Supreme Court nominees. I'm glad you made this point because I certainly was going to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a weird thing to want to pat them on the back for literally just doing what is right and what you need, you know, what anybody with any basic sense of integrity would do. Um, but clearly it's been a hard decision. Obviously elected representatives are, are maybe looking at, Hey, if I incur the wrath of Trump, I'm going to get primaried. So for me, there's really no bad outcome. If, if somehow my court case gets pushed forward and he, you know, overturns, that's great for me. If he doesn't, whatever, at least I played my part and, and you, you know, and I signed on to this thing, but, but yeah, like you said, for American democracy, it's, it's, uh, it's a very sad thing. <clears throat> right. So just a couple points to maybe wrap this here, just to build up what you said. Uh, one, the only, like, you're right. The Supreme Court justices were just doing their job and they don't necessarily deserve credit for doing that. But on the other hand, what did we hear for the weeks leading up to ACB's uh, confirmation hearings? Is that Trump is stacking the court? This is, this court's going to take us way uh, out of the mainstream. It's, it's, there was all this kind of derm and strang um that's right right i actually don't know that phrase <laughs> i think that's right again no, we'll put it to the fact checkers but about like uh, how that this is ruining the country right and there was all this like existential dread over the the how the process of picking supreme court justices and all these terrible things that these justices were going to do and ultimately as i mentioned at the time credit to me was like give them give them time right you never know and just let them 
do their jobs. And ultimately, as, as you acknowledge, like these are really qualified, super intelligent people. And while, while you and I and people out there might not read the law, read the constitution the same way that they do, and we might, we can disagree on that. Ultimately, they have done their job, I think, really incredibly well. And certainly, I would say not what those people on the far left had predicted for months. So while, yeah, I don't need to give them credit for doing their job, it would be nice if people acknowledged that all of like the, the hue and cry, you know, that phrase, uh, from months ago, like didn't happen, right? And so when consistently throughout this electoral process, the Supreme Court has turned away, struck down every challenge to like, to legitimate election results as well they should have. And it would just be nice to see that acknowledgement that the world didn't end one ACB replace RGB, RBG. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is, it is important to acknowledge that, but also um, I think the flip side would be that potentially it, it would come to Supreme Court justices making a determination on really not like nothing. There's really no reason that we should be talking about this anymore. And so there is still that component of the fact that like our, our system is fragile and it's dependent on people doing the right things right. in many areas. Um, yeah. And I mean, and so while, while I agree that potentially some of those concerns were overblown it's hard to say given how many people are still co-signing onto this uh, essential nonsense that, you know, if, if Trump had actually put some people on the, on the Supreme court who would have co-signed on the nonsense that we might be in a different position. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think in many ways, like hindsight is, uh, is always 2020. Um, and the fact that at least in this, in, at least in this instance, we have people who are, I mean, doing the right thing, non-Trump uh, appointed justices, freaking, what was it, Alito and, and Thomas, I think um, both were ready to hear the case. I mean, if only to, if only hopefully to, to settle it once and for all. But, um, but that is, it, I, and I, I guess maybe the last thing I will say, and still just a, another plug to bash the electoral college is that even if you got... <laughs> A few ten, you know, ten, ten. What is it? Twelve thousand votes in Georgia. Um, you threw them all out, and Georgia's electors go to Trump. And maybe you do something in Wisconsin, and you know, whatever the math was that worked out. At the end of the day, seven million more people voted for Joe Biden than voted for Donald Trump. And there seems to be very little like recognition on the Republican side that like, would we want to win in this instance? like through a bunch of technicalities because at the end of the day, like even if we got like a hundred thousand votes thrown out and maybe that, you know, we figured out how to, to work that in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, whatever, like that's not, that's 6.9 million people still um, that you're, that, that are uh, more of whom voted for Joe Biden than Donald Trump. Yeah. I, I think the last point, I, I, how many times are we going to say last and then just keep talking? Uh, that sounds about right. I, uh, is that the hundred plus elected officials that, that we've, we've mentioned here, it's troubling to me because this points to a longer term problem, right? I, mean, I think we all, to our anti-Trump people, hoped that his defeat would signal 
a little bit of a shift, not that the movement was going anywhere or some of the problems and the people that he spoke to, like, obviously we knew they were still going to be here, but for, you know, a quarter of our nationally elected officials to be questioning an, an election based on little to no evidence, uh, it, it really speaks to a, a longer term issue. And that's what's maybe what most worrisome for me is that, you know, we had one guy that was chipping away at the democracy, the foundations of it, but he was voted out. But we have 100 elected officials that are still in positions of power in our democracy who continue to question it. And yeah, that is worrisome to me. Um, I guess other things, or one other thing that has stood out to me uh, last couple of weeks is Biden continuing to put together his cabinet. I don't know, have you paid any attention to, to that at all? Um, other than the most diverse cabinet in the history of the of US cabinets, I guess. Yeah, uh, he promised that he was going to do that, and, and he has done that. Uh, a couple notes on that, actually. So one, he put together the first all-female communications team. So the, the top two positions for um, the White House press secretary, you know, his communications team, um, first lady's uh, communications team, the vice president's communications team, all-female. So uh, that's that's pretty cool. I One thing that was interesting to me, so... One of those departments that you don't talk about very much is the, the, the Secretary of Agriculture. And Jim Clyburn, who you probably know or recognize the name at least, is a representative from South Carolina and who essentially single-handedly saved uh, President-elect Biden's presidential campaign back in March after Biden had lost Iowa, lost New Hampshire, was going to South Carolina, looking like he was going to go 0 for 3 in his presidential runs. And Clyburn comes out and... and endorses Biden and, and everything changes. And so there's no one, in my opinion, that Biden owes more than to Representative Clyburn. So Clyburn was really pushing for Representative Marsha Fudge, who's a representative from Ohio, to be in the position of uh, the Secretary of Agriculture. And the reason for that was he, he wants to kind of change how that department the focus of the department to, to focus more on, on like hunger issues in our country, as opposed to like the more traditional like farming issues, which are definitely intertwined. But um, one thing that I thought was interesting in when Fudge was being interviewed about her potential role in this position, she said that it seems that black cabinet appointees are often pigeonholed into a few jobs. And, and she mentioned like the housing and urban development, right? Like in like, that's, for example, that's what Ben Carson does in the, in the Trump department. Right. And she's like, it, it feels like, yeah, we get more diverse and that there's more diversity within the cabinet, but it still feels like, you know, black people don't necessarily get our, the top jobs, quote unquote. Um, and funnily or ironically enough, she was actually appointed as the, the director of housing and urban development and, and accepted that film. Uh, I mean, I'm sure she's going to do a great job at, at that, but uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? It, it reminded me almost of like in football where you see that like black coaches can coach like the secondary or the wide receiver or the, the running backs coach, right? But there are so few like black head coaches or black quarterbacks coaches or, or stuff like that. I, I, so I don't know if you had any thoughts on it. I thought it was really, it was interesting to think about. Yeah, I think that's an that's an interesting comment. I mean, we will have a black Secretary of Defense, um, which I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> given that we said that this was the last thing we we're going to talk about ten minutes ago, I don't know that that's worth getting into here. I, I do think um, 
that I mean it's it is like this kind of uh these biases that we hold as to like who can do certain things and who cannot is is you know even with the most well-intentioned people it can it can surface itself um and I I you know I see no reason for it to be different in this instance um so I I totally can understand what her viewpoint is in is on this I mean I think what Biden just brought back Obama's secretary of agriculture to be the secretary of agriculture. Yeah. I mean, there's no question. It was Tom Vilsack, I believe, uh, super qualified and obviously yeah. incredibly experienced. And it's right. this is a really important position given, you know, food shortages in our country. So this guy was I'm not at all trying to bash this guy. He's eminently qualified for the position. I just thought the, the discussion around it was interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess the one thing I'll say about that is I, I think Biden used the term like I'm going to butcher this bold new vision or something like that. As he continued to appoint, um, is that, is that not it? He, no, I mean, that's just what a bizarre, like, yeah, it's yeah. clearly not what he's doing at all. <laughs> yeah, cause, Cause he says in one breath, like I am appointing people who are qualified for the positions that they hold, which is certainly true. And definitely yeah. um, in contrast to what's been going on for the right. past few years. Right. So there's that piece of it but he is bringing back a ton of people who have been involved in these situations. So he's really not bringing a ton of new perspective, um, kind of shuffling people around, uh, you know, from fed chair going to, uh, treasury secretary, things like that. Um, where certainly they have different powers and potentially can bring in slightly different perspectives, but really have had kind of entrenched Washington, Washington, more or less centrist democratic views, um, to his cabinet position, I think, I think somebody, what did, what, what, what did Obama's like cabinet, he called like a coalition of rivals or something like that, where he was. Doris, Cor- Doris Kearns Goodwin book, a team of rivals, team which, of was rivals taken from, yeah. which was taken from Lincoln because Lincoln appointed all of his rivals. Yeah. Go on yeah. that. Cause I, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. So, and this is, this is, this is in many ways, like a polar opposite to that. This is a lot of people that Biden's just like, we get along um, I, I believe in this person to do a good job, but we kind of all get along. So, so that, that's how I'm going about this. It's people he's had like these deep relationships with, um, for, for quite some time. And I absolutely respect that. I mean, I don't think it's, this is not a criticism of that approach. Every president should design his or her cabinet, however he or she wants. Uh, and I actually think in, in terms of like a government that didn't necessarily operate very efficiently over these last four years, putting in places people with experience and that you know that you have a good working relationship with is. Yeah. You don't have to fire them every like three months. Yeah, hopefully you're not. Uh, but I will say that I read something interesting about this, that people that might've expected Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, people to judge, like um, some of the, his Biden's chief rivals, I mean, we can really go down the list of, the Democratic presidential candidates, none of whom have been appointed to cabinet level positions and saying that it's actually really good for Vice President Harris as like she looks around there's really she's in a lot of ways, not only for the next four years, but potentially longer as like the president in waiting. So I don't necessarily think that that's the reason Biden is doing that. But uh, it's kind of a side benefit for Vice President Harris in terms of there's she was the only one really elevated to a cabinet level position, which is going to work in her favor. Should she choose to run in four years? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Lloyd Austin is the, is the secretary of defense nominee that you brought up earlier. This is a longer conversation. One, if, and when we get to his confirmation, uh, 
not as I don't think that's going to be smooth sailing. Uh, and then finally, with Fudge, who I referenced, the representative from Ohio getting pulled to a cabinet position, and Cedric Richmond, who was a representative from Louisiana, was also pulled out of uh, the House to go to a cabinet level position. The, the Democratic majority right now is is two twenty. They have 220 votes in there. Republicans have 211 right now. Um, and I'm sure you know, but like to pass anything in the House, you need 218 votes. So it's the smallest margin that either party has had since 2001 when the Republicans did, I believe, and the smallest Democratic majority since 1893. So Pelosi's going to have her hands full over these next couple of years to get anything done. She needs to keep her entire caucus on the same side. I mean, she can't lose. She loses three votes that nothing's going to get done. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see how, how they handle that. They not fill those seats via special appointment? They do, but it's not going to happen for a few months. Uh, like There'll be a special election for it. Um, and both of them should be safe Democratic uh, seats. But even, I mean, even then, you have 222, right? You still, it, it's going to be tricky. It's not like when she had, I think, 232 this past one, where you can afford you know, 10, 15 defections and still get things through. Uh, you got to have everyone on the same. Well, not, the same not if 15 gets you down to 217. Damn it. Right. All right. Yeah. All right. And I, so I think that that's about it for things from the last few weeks. Obviously, COVID has continued to dominate that the, the news cycle. So um, when we come back, we'll talk COVID and, and stimulus. Let's do it. Unemployment checks still in my along with my loan from SBA. Toilet paper selling like diamonds and gold. I'm broke as a jug and on my last roll. Mm. But ain't nobody sending us nothing. Nobody sending us nothing. So on our last episode, we had talked about Congress's failure to provide stimulus and relief to American people over the last nine months, right? We talked about the CARES Act was passed within two weeks of the COVID shutdown at the end of March. And since then, there's been nothing. And it was a prototypical example of congressional gridlock and people not, elected officials not working for the benefit of American people, but working for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and putting pride and party over people. I didn't mean to be so alliterative, but uh, all right. I, I was joking with you that maybe somebody listened to the podcast because on December 1st, so about 10 days ago, out of nowhere, COVID relief was revived and it was revived by this bipartisan group of senators um, in, in the Senate, obviously, and the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. And they got together and have been working on a relief deal. And so I, I'll turn it over to you for thoughts and details on it. But I, I just want to shout out some of the senators, um, Joe Manchin uh, and Mark Warner, Democrats from West Virginia and Virginia. We've mentioned Manchin before as being one of those you know, bipartisan senators, and then Republicans, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and Mitt Romney, uh, Utah, Susan Collins, Maine, again, two Republicans we've shouted out before as being people that are able to work across the aisle. And uh, one of the things with, like, with the House being so close, and the Senate is either going to be 50-50 or 51-49, it's the people in the middle are going to have a lot of power, because you know, you, you're going to need those votes on either side to make it happen. So it was, it's kind of cool to me to see these, these people maybe realizing the power that they have and getting together as, as not Democrats or Republicans, but trying to get relief to the American people. Um, so, you know, thoughts on 
on the bill that has, still hasn't been passed, but at least is, is not as dead as it was two weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, so the what the number came down to like nine hundred billion dollar package or so. The sticking points are maybe nine hundred eight. I think I saw. Yep, that's right. Number. The um the sticking points are uh on like Mitch McConnell's like worried about COVID loss COVID related lawsuits and he wants a limitation on liability or basically no liability for people who go back to work and potentially get the coronavirus uh, in their work environment, suing their employers. Um, that's, that's sort of on one side and on the other side, uh, Democrats are looking for additional relief for uh, states to be included in, in this most recent round of, um, in this most recent round of, uh, of, of the stimulus package. I think, <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a ton to say about, this situation other than it, it just comes at such an interesting time, right? Where we have on the one hand, like the stock market, uh, the Dow and S and P hitting record levels in the last like month or so. Um, while at the same time, um, I mean, I've seen numbers, I'm sure these numbers fluctuate and, and are not consistent, but, uh, numbers upwards of like, you know, two out of every five Americans, uh, experiencing food insecurity. Um, you know, I heard this just heart wrench wrenching account of, uh, of a food pantry in Brooklyn, um, where people who really have been employed gainfully is probably a stretch, but they've had the means to support themselves, um, and are now being sort of forced to, to look for support programs, um, at a time when, some people are, are making more money than they've ever made before. Um, it is, I don't, I don't know. It, it's like, well, you know, one, you have the stimulus package in general uh, that you can talk or you sort of lack thereof that you can talk about like what, you know, what are we doing? There's clearly, there should be a way that we get this done, right? Like that's, that's probably first and foremost, but then you step back and you, you look at some of the issues that progressives have been talking about and it is hard to look at the, like the specifics and not think of how, you know, how this might be a, a slight indictment <clears throat> of not an indictment of capitalism, but there is something to say for, you know, we've measured the economy on, on the unemployment percentage and, uh, and you know, how, how well that S and P and Dow are doing, um, but it's not always that reflective of what the average American experience is. Um, and people need help right now. And it's really just a shame um, that, you know, they're currently fighting about things that are, are at least in, in this immediate moment, not, uh, not what, not what feels important. I said a lot there as, as per usual. I've got. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, you said a lot of important things. Yeah, I, I think the stock market being up is, is great, and it's great for a lot of people. Uh, but as you have acknowledged, and certainly many presidential candidates have acknowledged, like the stock market isn't indicative of reality for the vast majority of Americans. And you know, I would counter that if, if you don't allow Americans to go out and work, um, if, you, if you prevent them from being gainfully employed through restrictive coronavirus measures, uh, 
then yeah, yeah it's, 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 like everybody's like the hospitals are physically getting overrun. So you have to do, if your only measure is distancing and things like that, it's hard to say that, you know, the, I, I don't know. I, this is, and I, and I hear what you're saying, but you know, if the only way we know how to get people back to work is to kind of go back to business as usual, that, that seems like a physical impossibility at this point. Yeah. Come on. You know better than anyway. I'm not saying business as usual. Right. But it's, it's, as we always say is that like, there's a balance here. And if as things have gotten more and more restrictive, there are more and more people out of work and more and more people you know, facing food insecurity, like you ref- referenced. Yeah. But I, yeah, I mean, but I guess is, is that more of in, in, in like, is, is the fact that people don't have enough savings to cover themselves for a full year? Is that, maybe more of the right, right right i mean we're, we're kind okay, of lumping in a bunch of issues together right right yeah but I, I mean i agree i think it, to get back to like the, the original point here is that people need help and <laughs> it's the, our job it's the job of the people we elect to to provide that help and while i am very encouraged by this group bipartisan group of centers that have gotten together and you know found a middle ground here theoretically i've been disappointed by you know mcconnell looking at that bill and saying that it's not going to work for Republicans if you don't have liability protection for employers. And I've been disappointed for, you know, people on on the right, the AOCs, I'm not just kind of using her as a boogie person. Like it's, she literally came out and said, she was like, it's it's not enough money. And it's like, maybe, maybe not like, should there be more? Probably, but like, let's try to pass something. Like we don't, we don't have to win on everything. If if you're one of these people, I, I do think, I watched briefly the press conference they had and it was cool. Like Manchin got up and let it off and then he kicked it to Collins who kicked it to um, Warner who kicked it to Romney. And it was like, all right, this is theoretically like how government is supposed to work. So I, and it wasn't the grandstanding like, Hey, yeah. Yeah. It was, everyone took it and was like, this is, you know, if someone Collins was like, this is um, the paycheck protection program. Like this is going, this has already helped 32,000 people in Maine. And this is why it's still good. And uh you know, Warner came up and talked about aid to local governments and why that's so important. It's like, great, all of these things are important. Like, let's get this done. Um, obviously, it's still not done 11 days later. So, you know, and maybe some we're simplifying the issues a little, a little, a lot here where it is really challenging to get this stuff done. And I don't want to minimize like the work of the, the staffs that are that are actually writing this legislation, but uh, frustrating, continue, I continue to be frustrated to hear like the chirping on both sides to try to get what they want where it's like, get, get the people what they need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess maybe the last thing I'll say about this, um, <laughs> famous last words, <laughs> yeah, famous last words. but, but not, um, coming from a position of not being terribly informed. Right. So the first $2 trillion package, um, in March of 2020 was about 560 billion in more or less direct payments. Right. So you had, uh, recent tax payers getting $1,200 checks, uh, like an additional refund check. Um, and then you had the $600 a week in additional unemployment insurance. Of course, that doesn't cover anybody who's not uh, really a part of the system. So, um, you know, mostly immigrants, uh, legal or otherwise, um, are excluded from that. And, and unfortunately, there are quite a few of, of those people here in the in the country who are essentially not getting aid that's that's kind of one piece but so a quarter of the two trillion was in direct payments um 
then you had another quarter go to the large corporations, kind of like the airline industry, trying to keep those um, afloat and about, you know, four, 350 billion to state and local governments and, and some to schools and other types of grant programs. Um, and, and then the last bit, um, you know, the last sizable chunk to small businesses um, in the form of sort of forgivable loans. And the, I think the PPP um, is in there, the pay, payroll protection program. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the things just uh, administratively is actually how difficult it is to like figure out ways to get money into people's pockets. Um, it's just, it, you know, it is, I think, uh, a, a wonder of the American system that, that maybe too often gets a, a, a bad rap, um, that you were able to do this in, I mean, of course there were people taking advantage of the system and things like that, but I, I thought overall, um, what they did the first round, you, you know, kind of worked. Um, it was, it was pretty, pretty impressive and, and hopefully, you know, I've, I've heard before sort of before the holidays that they're hoping to lock everybody down to come up with something. Um, I think just today, uh, they have like a stopgap spending measure. So government spending will continue, um, and, uh, for the next two weeks or week or whatever, one week singular. Right. Yeah. Go but ahead. that's what you said. It, like it's, it's, it's a deadline, right? And it, it's sometimes, you know, I've been thinking about this last few days where it's unfortunate that it takes a deadline where the government's fun spending the government, the funding for the government was about to run out yesterday to try to get anything done. But I mean, it's hard to throw stones when I'm also like a procrastinator and work best on a deadline. You know what I'm saying? So I got these people, they're all just people, right? And when there's a deadline, they actually get to work. I, and so it's frustrating, but it's also normal. Uh, and so, as you mentioned yesterday, they approved a one week stopgap funding measure, which is ridiculous. The government's now being funded week to week. Uh, but the goal is, yeah, I guess they're right. They're, they're all just people. Government's just the, the largest person ever. Uh, so hopefully by Friday, there will be a longer term government funding bill. And as part of that bill will be this coronavirus relief package. Uh, and I quite honestly, I'm, I'm like kind of optimistic just because everyone wants to get home. Like all, all of the Congress people want to get home by Christmas uh, or just for the holidays or New Year's or whatever, just want to get away and they can't until this stuff is done. So I, I think it, it would be a nice way for them to wrap up their session um, and then go home with your families having actually done your job. Yeah. And, and I guess maybe the last, last, <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I don't know why I keep saying that. Recurring theme. Of this. Oh, I did it too. Yeah. Not a, not a useful phrase, but probably also worth mentioning that most of the people in Congress who who do recognize what's going on none of them feel uh, none of them feel this pain um, and it's part of the reasons why you know having a, a representative Congress um, is certainly tricky because people from you know certain socioeconomic levels are, are really just never going to no, I, I shouldn't say never, but it is very difficult in the current system for them to get elevated into those types of positions. But in situations like this, where somebody's voice, their personal experience could be so powerful, um, you have to wonder if it is easier for Congress um, 
to behave in this way uh, because the people are just people and they don't, um, as much as they can learn about and read about these experiences, they've never really had them themselves. And I, I may be missing, you know, one or two, but the vast majority, um, have not, um, uh, and, and, you know, our, our millionaires are close to, um, and this is a very, very different reality. And it's something that I certainly had to come to terms with, um, just trying to read about it a little more. I mean, like I've complained about the impacts that the virus has had on my life. Um, ad nauseum, cer certainly like uh, it's just, it's hard sometimes to take that step back and, and really like think about how grateful I am for, for everything that, that I have and for the struggles that I don't have. Um, but being mindful of the fact that, you know, we need to do something for those people who are not as, as fortunate. Um, that's all I got. I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything more. Now. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, that was really well said. And I just want to act. I, I couldn't have said any better. So I want to echo that too. Um, and with a really nice sentiment like that, you know, when we come back, we will talk about the death penalty. Yes. The last uplifting segment of the day. <laughs> I see the preacher's eyes as my daughter cries when they strap me in this chair. Lord, I hope she forgives me for living my life this way. Tonight I ride the lightning to my final judge. So the last topic for this week is, as we kind of, you know, tongue in cheek alluded to, is uh, the the challenging, difficult, yeah, I don't, depressing uh, topic of the death penalty here in the United States. Um, controversial. Like there's, I'm trying to like find the, the right words for it, uh, and it's been in the news um, for those who have been you know looking for it really this last week because uh, two men have been executed by the federal government in the last two days, uh, both of them black men. And, and we'll get into that and what that means. But in last year, in, in 2019, uh, the attorney general, Bill Barr put reinstated the death penalty in the United States for the first time since 2003. And it hadn't been uh, outlawed or anything like that. It was just in the early two thousands, there were a number of, there were a number of uh, like court challenges to the the lethal the method of lethal injection the, the combination of drugs that were used to kill people um, and they were objected to based that that it was cruel and unusual punishment under the eighth amendment and so the federal government hadn't executed anybody in, in 16 years and while a number of states continued their state level executions uh, bar reinstating the the death penalty and there was just one drug now that is going to be was going to be used for it was a, I guess a big deal, but also something that I, maybe I, I took as a footnote, if, if at all, you know, it's not something I really paid much attention to until this last week. And really it's, it was the, the man that the government executed on, on Thursday, this, this man named, um, Brandon Bernard, Brandon Bernard, that's the one I'm thinking of. So it, we'll get in, get into his story a little bit, but that drove me down a path the last couple of days of really trying to get into this issue. Um, so I, I, I wanted to discuss it with you. I'm not totally sure 
how I feel about it. I, I actually, I think, I think that I am, but it's, I see the argument. This is, it's just a tough topic um, to talk about, to think about. And so I'm, I'm curious um, your, your thoughts on, on the subject uh, the last week in general. And what do you got? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, certainly it is, it is tough to think about, but, and, and I don't know if you meant it this way, but I, I guess I'll say, speak for myself in that it is not difficult for me to uh, look at this situation and think it is one of the more shameful things about the United States when I think about what we are doing here. Um, so, you know, as far as developed countries go, we're one of the few that still uses um, execution at, at, certainly at the federal level, really at any level. In, in the European Union, you really can't be a member if you have capital punishment um, as something that your country still practices. Um, the, I think philosophically, when I think about it, I know that we have an imperfect justice system and there's nothing more final than an execution. And I think you know, I've read numbers, you know, the number of people that have been exonerated that have been on death, death row for years is astounding. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be a person on death row for a crime you did not commit. Um, you know, it's one thing to be a victim of a crime, but you don't spend your entire life thinking that that's going to happen to you. And as a death row inmate for 10, 15, 20 years to sit there waiting for somebody to to take your life away for something that you didn't do is, is horrific. I think we know that it happens disproportionately um, to African-Americans, to people of color, um, to, to people who are poor and don't have the same, you know, we talk about an equal justice system, but we know that um, I think it's like a quote from the equal justice initiative um, that, that the American court system sort of treats you better um, if you're rich and guilty, then if you're poor and innocent, um, we know about the you know public defenders being overworked. There are just so many reasons that even if you believe that someone would deserve to die for a certain crime, that you can, uh, in good conscience, object to the death penalty um, because of all of these different things. I think when we talk about the story of Brandon Bernard, where you know, many people sort of think, well, you know, the death penalty is really for the worst of the worst. And then when we talk about his story, I think, you know, you might think a little bit differently as to how it is applied um, in this country and who is actually uh, subjected to it. <clears throat> I think, like you said, you know, the footnote of, um, of this past like six months was the reinstitution of the death penalty after a 17 year hiatus. Uh, there were 13 executions um, in the last uh, six months under uh, under the Trump administration. He's going to have executed more people um, than any other president in like the past 100 years. Since Grant, uh, Ulysses says Grant, right. who I think was 73 to 77 or something like that. <laughs> right, which... Uh, 18, 1873 to 1877. Yeah, oh yeah, like yeah. post-Civil War, like you know, no, no, no real rules. Um, it, it is, it is, uh, almost unfathomable to think about that. We are in this situation in, in 2020. 
I mean, that's like, that's kind of <laughs> the long and the short of how I feel about it. Yeah, I, I guess and I, I kind of hinted this to you before we started this segment that I was like, it's, I feel like I'm not going to be very uh, articulate with this just because I have so many thoughts about it. And yeah, I, I didn't mean that necessarily that I was conflicted about this, but I, it just, it's tough to to talk about and wrap, wrap my head around. Um, so I, I do want to provide some numbers because you referenced uh, some some of these facts, and I believe you used the word shameful, and certainly seems to apply. So um, the five the countries the five countries that executed the most people in the world last year. I mean, probably wouldn't be difficult for you to name them. China number one, Iran number two, Saudi Arabia number three, Iraq number four, Egypt number five, the United States number six. And if you're curious, Pakistan's seventh, Somalia's eighth. So like, is that, you know, the United States has to step back and look at itself and say, like, is that the list that we want to be on right now, right? The list with, with those countries, that that's who, you know, we're being compared to. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the number of innocent people killed since 1973. So the last 50 years, um, there have been at least 172 people that were later proved, proven innocent that have been executed by the United States. And I'm quite sure there's more. These are people that are, we know for a fact were innocent people that we killed, uh, 89 of whom are black men. I, and I don't know if you ever read the book, Just Mercy. Uh, I, I, uh, I saw the movie. So. Fair. All right. But you should read the book. It honestly, it was, it messed me up, but like, in a really good way. Yeah, uh, that's the equal justice. In it. Yeah. He's, he started it. He started um, by Byron Stevenson, Brian Stevenson. Uh, he started the Equal Justice Institute because his life was working on death row cases. And he, the, you know, for people that haven't read it, one, go read it over. If you have a holiday, you should go read that book. Uh, but he, the, the protagonist of the book is this guy who was innocent on death row that he gets freed. But sprinkled throughout the rest of the book are all these other cases of people who may or may not be innocent, but are executed, right? And they're his clients that he goes and he works for and they're executed. And it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's honestly traumatic to read about. I can't even imagine having a relationship with these people. Uh, but let, let's talk about the case of, of uh, Brendan Bernard here. Uh, Brendan Bernard, uh, because that's really what touched it off. And he was the youngest person executed by the United States in 70 years. Uh, he, as an 18 year old, he participated in an absolutely horrific crime. Um, he and, and four other people uh, robbed uh, this this couple, this young couple who was, you know, work as, were like ministers um, in Texas. They, then they got worried that they were going to be able to recognize them. They put them in the trunk of the car, drove around. Um, one of the five shot them in the head and then they lit the car on fire and, and burned their bodies. So I, I don't at all want to minimize the crime itself. In uh, the person, the one, the, the man who pulled the trigger uh, was executed a few months ago. I, uh, Bernard's role in it, I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like he was, you know, he was an accomplice. Uh, he went and got the lighter fluid to, to light the car on fire. So again, it's not like this is uh, necessarily an innocent guy, but at 18 years old, he was, you know, convicted and sentenced to die. And, you know, the other three members of that, that gang there that participated in the crime were all under 18. And, you, you can't, we have decided that we can't, thank goodness that we can't execute um, juveniles. So those people were sentenced to, to life in prison, um, two of whom are actually out of jail already. So Brandon Bernard was a year older than some of these other people. 
a couple of these other people are either in jail or out of jail and, and he's dead. Um, and I think if, if you care about justice and fairness, it, I, that's hard because in my opinion, I, that doesn't seem just to me. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know what it would be like to be family members of a crime like that. I don't know um, what they might be feeling. I don't know if they believe that watching this guy get executed would help them find peace. I think I have to believe that maybe in the moment, like, you know, 20 years ago when the crime was committed, they, they might have felt like that, but it's 20 years on. And of, of course, you know, we do know that he didn't pull the trigger he's participated in, in trying to dispose of the bodies, which is, you know, certainly not, uh, commendable. Um, but there was some, uh, belief that, or at least part, part of his case was that he believed that if he didn't participate, that the person who did shoot them was going to shoot him too. Um, which like we, you know, no one else was there. So it, it would be hard to say, um, whether he was like an enthusiastic participant or, or someone who was 18, um, in a terrible situation did and, you know, panicked and doing all the wrong things. Right. Um, and then he spent the rest of his life in prison, you know, according, according to sort of the stories, like trying to, uh, both better himself and prevent other people from, uh, finding themselves in the same situation that he did. So really being as productive of a person as you can be behind bars, um, and we, and, and like the federal prosecutor that had originally uh, advocated for the death, death penalty in this case sort of came back around and said it should be life without the possibility of parole. I think five of the nine jurors also wrote open letters saying, um, while we voted for the death sentence at that time, we no longer believe that's the right punishment in this case. Um, I think certainly, and I think I don't know. There's some some national polls suggesting that, that the majority of Americans are no longer in favor of the death penalty because it is not um, any more of a deterrent to crime than life in prison is. It hasn't been really shown to do anything other than, like, really, if it's not the deterrent to crime, it it, it its purpose is um, it's vengeance is vengeance. There's no, there's no other way to say it, that, that our belief in justice that, you know, an eye for an eye or, or, or um, a life for life. And in this case, potentially someone who did not, you know, you know, we've heard other instances of getaway drivers and other people participating in crimes and getting punishments like this. It, it just doesn't, I don't, I'm not sure who it sits right with. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so I mean, I think the thing that is the biggest issue for me is that I don't think the government should be in position to take someone's life. Uh, and, and that's I mean, that's what they're doing here, right? We're putting in, in ourselves, the government as a country, as a society, we're putting ourselves in position to say that this person no longer deserves to live. Um, that bothers me. And, and just like it bo- would bother me for you know, life in prison without the possibility of parole for someone who was 17, right? Like, is that, uh, it, yeah, I, I don't see what, what good it does. I, I, I just don't feel like it should, should be the role of the government to be, to be deciding who lives and who dies. And not only deciding, but then ex, like 
executing that. Uh, let me let's let me make the case for for a death penalty here and, and prove me wrong. All right. Um, and so you referenced the the family of the two people that um, Bernard participated in that murder. Uh, they were pleased. They, they thanked um, Attorney General Barr. They thanked President Trump for letting it go through. And they said, I, I hope he founds Jesus. I hope, you know, if, if he has turned over to, to Christ, um, we know that our son and daughter will, will welcome, them in, welcome him in heaven. But they, they were, you know, they felt like justice had been done when he was finally killed. Um, and looking at, you know, the man that was executed last night, he was placed on, on death row for, uh, for molesting and then murdering his two-year-old daughter. Uh, there's another. There's a woman actually on on death row who strangled an eight-month-old pregnant woman, and cut her stomach open, and took her baby out. Uh, the Boston Marathon bombers on death row. Um, Dylan Roof, uh, who who murdered those nine people at the church in, in South Carolina, he's on death row. Uh, if you are someone, a family member of those people, uh, they they've taken a love love loved ones, you know life from them. They, they've, they've extinguished one or multiple lives of, of people that had a lot to give and often completely innocent people that, that um, couldn't protect themselves, children, elderly, people at, at church services, uh, people, you know, kids that are watching a marathon. Uh, if you're those people and you do believe in a sense of, you know, an eye for an eye that, you know, our God is a just and a vengeful God, uh, then the death penalty should exist. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't shed any tears for a guy that participated in the killing and burning of, of two innocent young people. Great, he turned his life around. These people had their whole lives ahead of them to live. You know, why, why, should, he, why should we care if he, whether or not he turned his life around? Their lives were great and he took them away. So I mean, why, shouldn't they, why shouldn't we give those people, people like that, the death penalty? Yeah, um, I, I think I started to say this before. I don't disagree that there are people that we can believe deserve the death penalty. I 100% would grant you that there are crimes for which it feels like the only bit of justice would be to have that person um, die. I mean, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't say that what he did in this instance amounts to that, but re I, I think regardless, I think, you know, there is, um, there is something, there are uh, some of the other cases that you mentioned certainly for me would meet that mark, but I would still um, argue that one, the existence of the death penalty does not preclude it from being applied in only those instances, right? So we know that it has a much broader application. <clears throat> we also know um, that in this country, like we use a standard for, for these types of felonies as innocent until proven guilty because we believe in our heart of hearts that it is better to let a guilty man free than to put an innocent person in prison. Um, and there could be, there's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea, right? Like the burden of proof is to prove that somebody did something, not prove that they did not do something and have them by default uh, you know, be convicted of a crime. And the idea is that, you know, we as a system or as a society are essentially committing crimes when we put innocent people in prison, especially when we put innocent people to death, right? Like as a society, we've decided, all right, you deserve to die for this, even if we might not know that. And so absent a perfect justice system where we get the, where we get it right every time, there can't exist 
a something like the death penalty that has no, you know, there is no recourse. There's nothing after that. And I can totally understand how people might feel a certain way. Um, I think there have been psychological studies where people who have really hoped for somebody to be executed don't find the peace, don't find that sort of thing that they were hoping for after the fact. But all that aside, when you ex, yeah, I mean, I, not to mention like all of the other problems, right? The systemic inequalities of how we apply the death penalty in this country, right? Like it's, it's the people who get convicted in death penalty cases, it doesn't span the gamut. It's poor people, it's minorities. We know exactly, you know, who befalls this punishment and who does not. Um, so, I mean, there are just a host of reasons why we should still feel okay in a, in a society without a death penalty, even if certain people who deserve to die, we're not the ones putting them to death. Yeah, let me let me throw some more numbers to to back up what you're saying here. So, um, right now um, on death row, forty two percent of the people on death row are black, uh, and just our 13, population is like twenty five percent black. No, right? no, thirteen thirteen percent of this country is black. Forty two percent of our of the people on death row are black. Um, uh, on federal death row. Uh, I got it somewhere. There are currently 53 people on federal death row, 23 black men, 21 white men, and seven Latino men. So again, like just it disproportionately, it, it's just to back up what you're saying about how our criminal justice system disproportionately affects certain people. Um, since executions, since 1977, 300 black de defendants have been executed for the murder of a white victim. Only 21 white defendants have been executed for the murder of a black victim. Right. And so what you, what you see, and I mean, this has been borne out in study after study, is that when jurors see a, a black man killing a white victim, they are far more likely to impose harsher sentences. And, you know, the, the, the people on death row, whether federally or at the state level, are disproportionately, you, you mentioned poor, which is really important because that, that's a huge factor, but, you know, poor minorities far too often. And so all of the points you made are great. I think that that line... Uh, that, that's it was a powerful line where it's like you can feel it some people deserve to die for their crimes but not necessarily society that the government should be the one killing those people yeah yeah so i mean i, I don't know it, this is it's heavy uh to talk about I, I i think you know we end up on the same page i do think as i try to make i do think there are arguments mm -hmm. for the death penalty. and there's reasons it still exists right 25 states still have it a majority almost, you know, a plurality, at least, of states in this country still have the death penalty. Um, and so there are, there are arguments you can make for it. Um, but I don't, I don't feel good about it. Which ones still carry it out? It's a much smaller percentage. Like, they have it on the books, but I, I think many, many states have had a similar, like, hiatus policy that they're not, that they're not doing that. I don't even know if it's yeah, so 13 have executed people in the last seven years. So maybe more than you thought, but um, heavily concentrated in, in one region in our country. Yeah, Southeast, I would imagine. Texas executed like 570 people in the last five years. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, so I, like I said, I, I respect that. And I do not at all want to minimize, uh, you know, the, the anguish of, of victims of, of people 
who committed crimes that are that are now on on death row. Um, I just I, like I I can't say it enough. I just don't feel like it's the government's role to be killing people. And um, like you said, it's it's a stain on the country. It's it, to me, you know, it, it is shameful um, that you know we we've killed two people in the last forty eight hours. Yeah, and I I mean not to bring this back to Trump, although it's it is it's you know it's one of those things where there's so many things going on. If this was the only thing bad thing, like this would you would think, or bad thing, if this was the only sort of break from tradition, this would have gotten a ton of coverage, I think, but it's, you know, it started in July in the midst of an election season, and it is one of those things where it's very convenient to to pretend, or not pretend, or ignore, or whatever the, the right word is, um, but it's, yeah, it is, it's one of those things that, like, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm a, a, finally at a loss for for words on on something, um, but it's it's not good. Yeah, it's. I think what you're trying to say is what I agree is that that we certainly you know individually, and I would imagine on a largely as a society, like having given it the attention that it deserves. You know that the fact that our government continues to kill people um, and is now lumped with <laughs> China, Iran, Pakistan, like the like. Uh, I th- again, I think that that should say something to us. And, and even the fact that we're talking about this after these two people have been killed uh, speaks to like, we, you know, this is something that we probably should have been aware of and, and more and done more research on and um, been more concerned about in the last six months. And, and we weren't because of all like the clown stuff, but in the grand scheme of things, it's almost like, you know, when we're coming to like people, we're taking people's lives away. That's, there's nothing more important than that. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess on the one hand, I'm, I'm glad it's kind of reignited some debate and passion over these last few days, but as always, it's, it's disappointing that it takes, you know, terrible events to, to reignite that attention that issues often deserve. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, with that, I think we're, is this concluding our 10th episode? It is. And if we, that was kind of a depressing way to conclude. So I will say, uh, Yesterday, the FDA, I want to talk about the FDA at some point. I, I, I think I'm out on the FDA, but uh, the FDA finally approved. <laughs> I, I got a lot of thoughts on them. Uh, they finally approved the, the first vaccine here in the United States. Um, yeah, I, saw this, I was going to get fired or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I saw this cool clip because the UK approved the vaccine like a week or so ago in Canada a few days ago. Yeah. Uh, but there was this 91-year-old guy who had who had taken one of the first vaccines in the world, really, uh, except for those like fake vaccines they have in like Russia and China. Uh, did you see that at all? That, like the Russian yeah, vaccine? Like, not supposed to drink on it and uh, <laughs> good, good luck. Good luck on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and Putin just refused to take yeah. it even as he gives it to all his people. Um, but you might have seen this because it was, it was like the Daily Show's moment is in. Uh, and it was this 91-year-old guy, and the reporter was like, "How did, sir? How this, this is one of the first vaccines given in the world? How did you get this?" And he was like, "I just called them up, and they said, come on down.'" And he was like, "I was running a little late, and I, someone I couldn't find anyone to park my car, so I was I was late." Uh, he was he was all upset. It was such an old person thing. Like the guy's trying to ask him about his vaccine, and he's, he's, he's going all and on and on about like the the lack of a valet at the hospital. <laughs> so, uh, and he was finally like, you know, I made it to 91 years old. I don't, I figured why die now? And I was like, all right, man, good for you. So um, that's definitely, 
uh, might not make it to the second dose for natural reasons, but uh, why do you have to do that? (laughs) All right. uh, So I just think uh, in the next few days, the United States will finally, um, the first people will get their first dose of the vaccine. So, um, you know, hopefully it's just, it's, it's downhill from here or downhill in a good way from here. Yeah. Is it, can it be downhill in a good way? Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's all downhill from here, right? You've reached like the top of the mountain and it's all downhill. That's what I meant. Yeah. I think that means it gets worse, but see, yeah, you would. You're like a glass half empty guy, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's talk FDA next time. All right, maybe okay. not at some point. All right, some point. All right. Good to be back, buddy. It's good to be back talking to you. Good to see you. All right, I'll see you next week. See ya. Keep out. There's diamonds in the side.